It is uh, indeed good to be back with you uh, here at Agora Bible Fellowship, and especially uh, on a day like today, where not only we take communion, which is one of my all-time favorite things to do, because it's one of the things that unites us with Christians all over the world. No matter how people worship, everybody seems to take time to take communion together, to recognize the body and the blood of Jesus Christ that unites us. And that to me is special. That's really special. The other part that I think is, is special is, uh, is, is Advent. Evangelicals are kind of just rediscovering Advent. It's one of those uh, times where we can just very simply tell the story to each other again. And this is a, not only a remarkable story, but it, it, it's a strange story. I mean, let's, let's, let's face it. It's kind of a strange, uh, because if, let's face it, this is not the way we would have done it. If we would have planned Christmas, it would have all been about flair and celebrity and all kinds of things like, it'd be a big show. But the way God did it was quietly and simply and with almost the least likely of characters as if it was to remind us of the lengths that he will go, the lengths that God will go to draw us to himself. And yet the characters that play out this story have much to teach us about how to get ready to celebrate the coming of Christ. And that's really what Advent's about. It's about getting ready to celebrate the coming of Christ. And over the course of the next four weeks or so, I, I'm sure John's going to be bringing to you different characters to kind of help us get ready, tell this story through their eyes. And this morning, I want to tell you a story uh, about one of those characters. And, and he's probably one, the, the one of those people who almost always gets overlooked in the telling of this Christmas story. He's a carpenter by the name of Joseph. And uh, Joseph is one of those people who's almost always overlooked. And he's overlooked because we have a notion that since Joseph is not the natural father of the Christ child, that he's just a bystander. That uh, he's kind of mere window dressing on this, on this particular story. Not particularly an integral part of the plan, if you will. But I would beg to differ with that. In fact, I would venture to say that not only does Joseph play a very integral role in God's planning and playing out of this story from a biblical perspective, but he is likely the one person in this story that you and I can most identify with. And the story begins with that in Matthew chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. I want us to take a look at... Uh, the first chapter of Matthew today, and we're going to go through not only verses that I prepared, but the verses that were read for us this morning, which I had no idea they were going to read, which is kind of cool. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, A record of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Matthew is telling the story and he begins with this genealogy, this lineage, if you will, this pedigree of the Messiah. The Messiah. And it's the house of David. He says, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's how far back this genealogy goes. And he tells this story this way because this is going to make an impression upon his audience who are Jewish and want to know what's the significance of this particular story. And then it goes into the parts of the Bible that we never read. You know, this is one of those things we flip over these things, don't we? So-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so. I always flip over all of those. But the Jews didn't flip over those things. They just, they wanted to know what's the lineage of this? Because the prophets told us exactly where this lineage was going to come from. It was going to come from the tribe of Judah. This was going to be the son of David. This is a big deal. And so you go through about 15 or 16 verses of so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so until you get to verse 16 that says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Matthew's genealogy traces Joseph's ancestral line right to the Messiah. If you go to Luke chapter 3, you'll see another genealogy, and it's completely different. It looks completely different than this one. But Luke's genealogy traces Mary's ancestral lineage to the Messiah. And what I want you to realize is that Matthew's telling his readers, who, again, are a Jewish audience, that Jesus' earthly genealogy can be traced back to David and to Abraham. It's a royal lineage. It's a spiritually significant lineage. And that both Mary and Joseph are part of that lineage. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, it says that at just the right time in history, at just the right time in history, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, born to redeem those under the judgment of the law, that they might receive the full rights as sons and daughters of God. And Joseph, my friends, is part of that exact timing in history. It is the reminder to us that God, our God, works in history to accomplish his purposes. In fact, to some degree, that's what history is all about. It's about his story. And Joseph plays a part in that story. And get this, so do you and I. You and I play a part in the story that God is telling. And we're part of God's story. And because he does, Joseph's story has something to teach us, if you will, this morning about getting ready and getting prepared to celebrate the coming of the Lord. And so let's meet him. Verse 18. Says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always thought of this as a very sensitive situation. Maybe because I'm a man and try and put myself in Joseph's place. But Joseph is a man who finds himself caught at this particular point in a quandary. He's caught in a quandary emotionally. He's caught, caught in a, in a uh, 
in a, in a quandary relationally, and I would venture to say that he's caught in a quandary spiritually. This is a very sensitive situation, and I've always appreciated how difficult an assignment it must have been for Mary to tell Joseph that she was pregnant by somebody else. Can you, guys, put yourself in that particular, kind of weird, don't you think? Kind of, put yourself in the, in the place of a, probably somewhere between 15 and 17-year-old girl trying to say this to somebody that she's engaged to. In fact, I kind of put together in my own mind what that conversation might have been like. It kind of begins like, honey, I, I have some news for you. It's really great news, sort of, kind of. I mean, if you really think about it, and Joseph says, well, honey, come on, just tell me, what is it? And she comes out and says, I'm pregnant. And uh, Joseph says, pregnant? You mean with a child? And she said, well, yes, in fact, it's going to be a baby boy. And Joseph said, well, that's wonderful, except for the fact that we've never had sexual relationships before. And I'm feeling a little bit confused, if not left out about this particular uh, equation. And so she says, yeah, I know. And that's kind of where this conversation goes to this next and more difficult part. She said, you see, Joseph, you're not the natural father. And Joseph says something like this. And that's the good news, Mary? Because the wedding invitations are already in the mail. And Mary says, no. The good news, Joseph, is that the Father is the Holy Spirit. And Joseph goes, oh, I feel so much better. <laughs> the Holy Spirit. Oh, man, that, 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 that's, 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 that's great. Because I was worried there for a second that uh, I was, was going to be getting married to a careless adulterer. And now I feel so much better knowing I'm simply marrying a critically ill schizophrenic. <laughs> That's how I've often imagined this story. Maybe you can identify with somebody trying to tell a story like that. But then I found something when I read the text that really caught my attention. I never noticed it before. Maybe you caught it. Let me read it again. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And the phrase that I want you to catch is that she was found to be with child. Found to be with child. I did some research on this you know what I discovered? I discovered it wasn't so much a conversation that Mary initiated as much as it was a situation that she could no longer avoid. You see, more than likely, how the story really went down is that Mary, after receiving news of her immaculate conception, didn't say anything to Joseph. In fact, she didn't say anything to anybody. How would they understand how would Joseph understand? She didn't even understand all that was going on right now. And so instead, she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, and she stays there for a few months in Jerusalem. Elizabeth is the wife of uh, Zechariah, who becomes the mother of John the Baptist. And she's there for Joseph. Uh, there, there's this shocking new development when she gets back, because after a couple of months, she comes back, and Mary looks somewhat different. 
And for Joseph, there's this shocking new development. It's the development of a baby bump. And we're told that she was found or found out to be with child. In fact, as soon as Joseph sees his fiance, he can tell that something's not right. Something's wrong here. She's met somebody else. She's breaking our, our engagement. She's broken God's law. And I'm sure at the moment, all the things that he had thought, all the things that he had planned, all the things that he had dreamed about sharing with this woman and this young man are dashed in a moment. This particular moment. And they're replaced with a whole other set of emotions. Of shock. Of confusion. Of betrayal of anger, of embarrassment. And who could blame him? Or who could detour him from exercising everything in his power and everything under, under Jewish law to distance himself from this woman and just move on? I don't know if you realize this, but you know what? The Bible reveals it. That by Jewish law, he had a right to not only divorce her because even being engaged, it was illegal. You had to get divorced in order to get unengaged. But he had the right by Jewish law to have her publicly stoned. But verse 19 says something that's really powerful. It said, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. And what I want you to focus on there that says that Joseph was a righteous man. Which means that he was right with God. And that he had a desire to do what was right in God's eyes. Essentially what he's saying there is that Matthew is a man of character, of godly character, who is both conscious of and conscientious of and conscientious to the truth of God's law. And as such, he could have exposed Mary to public ridicule, as I said, or even stoning, but he also was a man who was conscious of and conscientious to another aspect of God's character traits. And that had to do with God's mercy, with his grace, which led him to take a different course of action toward her and to not to expose her to the grace. And you say, well, why would he do such a thing? Because he loved her. He loved her. He loved her. You see, Joseph was a man of truth and grace. Not truth at the expense of grace, and not grace at the expense of truth, but truth and grace. Several years ago, we had a men's retreat at our church at Coast Hills, and the speaker was gentleman by the name of Kenny Luck, and 
we're talking about transformation, God making a difference in men's lives and how men were called to make a difference in their families and in their community and the church. And, and he reminded our guys, that guys, before we can really do more for God, we need to become more like him. And he's talking about character development. And in particular, the character of Jesus and becoming more like him. John says in his beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and lived among us for a while, and we beheld his glory. Glory of the one and only Son of God, full of grace and truth. Huh. That's the kind of guy the Bible tells us that Joseph was. You know, the problem, and, and really, you know, that verse 14, that's the most Christmas-like verse of Scripture in the Bible. That's what Christmas is about from a biblical perspective. It's about incarnation. It's about the fact that God cared enough, was willing to go to full extent to become like us so that he could identify with us and become the Savior. Huh. Full of grace and truth. You know, the problem with character development is that it isn't done in a vacuum. It's not accomplished by simply filling in the blanks of an outline. It doesn't happen in just one weekend away. It's, it's, it's generally rather forged and tested and developed in and through tests and trials and challenges and difficulties and pain and disappointment. Have you noticed those kinds of things? Because that's what the Bible says. In James chapter 1, James writes, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's how character is developed, God says. That's how it's developed. And a lot of us would just as soon run away from that, if the truth be told. Which is exactly what the Bible tells us we're not to do. You see, for some of us, the focus, that we have a tendency in, in, in the evangelical, to focus on the finished product. And everything short of that finished product is, is, is guilt-producing, the orientation. The Bible focuses more on the process of that development on the journey of that particular development. And God says, that's where I am with you, in and through those things. When Joseph goes to bed that night, all sorts of thoughts have got to be going, uh, all sorts of feelings are rolling around in his head. And in the middle of the night, this angel appears to him. Don't you wish you had an angel appear to you when you were going through a trial? I would imagine just like you and I would like to have angels come over. And Joseph probably would have loved to have been able to pick up a Bible and read how God had done it over and over and over. 
and over and over again. He didn't have that. You and I have that sitting on our bedstand. But unfortunately, that's often where it lies closed again and again and again. But an angel of the Lord appears to him. And this is what he says. He says, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The angel of the Lord appears and says, Son of David, I know you've had a tough day, but God is in this, Joseph. God is in this. Don't be afraid. Don't run away. Here's the question I have for you this morning. Have you ever been confronted with a situation you didn't want to face? Or have you ever been told something you didn't want to hear? I bet you have. I bet you have in the last month, if not the last several years. Some of you know us like to go through the last couple of years have been tough years. There have been recession and lost jobs and lost investments and lost homes. We've been asked to endure any number of difficult personal things. There have been church stuff. No, I know it doesn't happen here, but other places, people go through church stuff. It's hard to go through church stuff because our expectations of church is that we're all just these wonderful people. You know, the truth of the matter is we're all a piece of work. We really, really are a piece of work. We go through broken relationships, and the list could go on and on and on and on, can it? I remember years ago I received a letter. A guy was going through a similar period in his life, and he said, I'm in so much pain the last two years. I'm having second thoughts about everything I've ever believed. I want to run away from my problems, and I want to run away from God. And his question is, why is this happening to me? And who's to blame? Isn't that our questions? Why is this happening to me? Who can I blame in this particular? Where can I point the finger? I got together with coffee, or for coffee with him, and I said, you know what, maybe... You're asking the wrong question because, you know, I think for the most part, we as Christians ask the wrong question when we go through difficult times. We're asking the why question over and over and over and over. And you know what? God seldom answers the why question. You know why? Because that's not the most important question. Even if you knew why, it wouldn't probably make you feel better at the moment. The real question to ask is what? It's the what question. What do you want me to learn? What do you want me to hear from you, God? What do you want me to do? Or what would you have me to do with what it is that I'm going through right now? And I believe that those are the things that Joseph wants to teach us. And that's why I say he's probably somebody in this story that we can most identify with because we all go through stuff. 
and it seems to get hyper at Christmas because our expectations of Christmas are joyful, wonderful, happy, yay. And the reality is we're going through tons and tons of stuff. Some of it's emotional, some of it's relational, some of it's spiritual, some of it's financial, but all of it's real. Joseph has some things to teach us right where we are about what it means to get ready for the coming of Christ. Here are the three. Three things. First one. He says, I want you, God says, I want you to realize that Joseph listened to God. He listened. He listened to God. You know, it's easy to stop listening, isn't it, when you find yourself in a difficult or character-building situation. It's, a, it's easy to to ignore the word of God. It's easy to stop going to church. It's easy to stop praying, to stop reading your Bible, to avoid the people that God, people of God who will tell you the truth even when you don't want to hear it. It's easy to step away from your small group. It's easy to betray the things that you once maybe held near and dear to your heart. It's easy to stop listening when, to God when you find yourself in a difficult or character-building situation. The Bible says, though, that Joseph listened to God. And I also believe that he listened for God. The scripture says that you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And you know why I think so many of us don't hear from God? It's because in difficult times we tend to become half-hearted, half-hearted. We kind of take the attitude of take it or leave it. We'd rather rely on our own instincts, our own judgment, our own expectations, our own entitlements. And Joseph apparently wasn't like that. He dared to listen to God and for God. Here's the second one. He listened to learn and to grow. The Bible said there's a reason God is allowing situations that we go through to come our way. And the reason is God's purpose for us. And what he wants to accomplish on purpose through you. And the same thing is true for you and me. Not only is that a purpose for Joseph, it's the same thing for you and me. And God has a purpose that he wants to accomplish both in us and through us. And I would venture to say God has a purpose that he wants to accomplish through, to and through Agora Bible Fellowship. And it isn't, and it's something that's bigger than what we think it is. You see, it's not necessarily convenient, but it's critically important to God's kingdom agenda. And you say, well then, well maybe I, I just don't want, you, we, you know, we can miss those things. God says, here, I've, I've got something for you. I want, it's, it's on purpose. It's going to accomplish something kingdom-wide for, for me and I'm bringing it to you. And we can say no. I don't want want to be moved out of my comfort zone. I don't want to be uh, inconvenienced of sorts. And God said, okay, I'll get somebody else to do it. And they'll do it, and we'll miss it. We'll miss it. But God has a purpose he wants to accomplish 
not only the church, but in and through us. And the purpose that, that he wants to accomplish through you and through me is to be increasingly conformed to the image of Christ and that we be an instrument of Christ and for Christ in the world. And when I say the world, I don't just mean 10,000 miles away, but I also mean maybe about 10 feet away and 10 doors down away and 10 minutes away and 10 miles away each and every day to make a difference for Christ wherever it is that he calls us to be. That means that we would desire to become more like Jesus today than we were yesterday and more like him tomorrow than we are today and that we'd be open to that pur purpose each and every day in the face of each and every experience and each and every situation we face in life. About the time I received that first letter, I also got a second letter. And I read it, and it was an angry and nasty, vile letter. I mean, pastors never get nasty, <laughs> angry, or vile letters. But it was somebody who was obviously very hurt and disappointed, and they were ripping at me and in, into me and in the church and into Christianity, and, and uh, there was no name on this on this particular day. And I have kind of had this, and I would venture to say, uh, I w if I was your pastor, I would let you know this, you know, up front. But if I ever get a letter that doesn't have a name on it, it generally goes right into my file, which is under my desk in a round kind of a deal. And that's where it goes. Because, and it's not because you're evil people. It's because I can't respond. But for some reason, I didn't do that this time. I didn't do that. Instead, for some reason, I don't know what it was, I instead became quiet. And I got away by myself and asked myself some questions, a couple of things. First question is, what if anything in this letter is from God that's deserving of my attention? And the second question is, what do I need to let roll off my back in this letter? Because it isn't. He said, well, how would you know? Well, I began to ask myself some questions. Question number one, is this consistent with the word of God? And two, is this consistent with the heart of God? And three, is this consistent with the purpose of God to make me more like Jesus? And is this consistent with the peace of God. And you know why I did that? Because for some reason at that point in time with that letter, I wanted to learn. I wanted to grow in ways that maybe I hadn't done as a leader before. You know, growth doesn't take place on the mountaintop. It's where we all want to live, on the top of a mountain, seemingly especially when we talk about Christians. Christians always want to be on a mountaintop somewhere. <laughs> I, I took a group of high school kids on top of a mountain. That gal right there was in that group. She about killed me most of the... I took a group of high school kids. We climbed up on top of Half Dome, 
I don't know if you've ever been up on top of that. We got to the end of, the, that we were up on top of this mountain peak, and there was about 15 of us, and Jana was one of our friends, and we were standing on the edge, and it was literally like this, standing on the edge of the, and if you look down, you go down 5,000 feet without hitting anything until you hit the valley floor. And Jana and her friends were doing this. Ooh, ooh, and I'm getting sweat rolling off of my hands, thinking I'm going to make a phone call to Jean and Nancy and tell her her daughter had just flown off of the deal on top of things. But you know what? It's amazing to look out at everything. You can see everything from the top of a mountain. But you want to know something? This is free. Nothing grows on top of a mountain. It's a great vantage point. But things don't grow up there. In order to grow, you have to go back down into the valley. And that's a journey. And that takes some work. And that takes some sacrifice. And that takes some stuff. But you know what? Doggone it. Things grow there. And you and I sometimes live for these mountaintop experiences as though that's the place I need to be all the time. No, that's the place to go and get some perspective of where you've been. But to dare to get climbed down off of that mountain and go back down to where things are green and where they're growing and where stuff is happening. And that's where God calls us. Joseph listened to God and he listened to learn and to grow. And that's exactly where he was. Here's the last one. Joseph learned to let God be God. To let God be God. Verse 24. It says, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. If I was to interpret that, I would simply say that Joseph dared to trust God or to trust what God told him to do. And you know what? When push comes to shove, my friends, the greatest gift you can give yourself and the people you love is to do what God tells you to do. Period. 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 Bow your heads for a minute. I told you when I began this message that Joseph may be the one person in this story that we can most identify with. Because we too go through difficult times, painful times, disappointing times, confusing times. Some of you are going through that right now. And so let me ask you, what trials, what tests, what challenges, what disappointments are you going through right now? And let me follow it up with three questions. Question number one is, what did God want you to hear this morning? One thing. One thing that God wanted you to hear this morning. It may not have been in this message. It may have been something that 
was read by this family when they lit the candle. It may have been a line from a song that these kids sang a little while back. It may have been one of these points. It may have been a particular scripture. What did God want you to hear? What's your takeaway? One thing that God wanted you to hear this morning. Second question is, what does God want you to learn so that you can grow? To grow. To grow. What does God maybe want you to do through the course of this Christmas season? What's one thing that you could do to get really ready? One thing you can trust him with to get really ready to celebrate the coming of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Messiah, Jesus himself. Father, thank you for Christmas, the celebration of Christ, the time when we remember the lengths that you went to send your son to live among us, to show us your character, to take upon himself our sin, to go to a cross and pay for rise from the dead to give us life and hope as we anticipate and wait upon your second coming. Lord, may this Christmas be a time we are really ready to celebrate your coming. And I pray that in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Thank you.